you know, today we're going to kind of, I don't know, switch gears just a little bit. Uh, we're still in James, and uh, we're still talking about what this first section of James has been about, which is about trouble and, and suffering. But we're, James is the most practical book in the Bible, which means he doesn't do a lot of, this is why you're going through trouble. This is, this is what's behind suffering. He just says, when trouble comes, this is how you should handle it. And then he moves on to the next topic. But I don't know about you. For me, a big part of dealing with the trouble and the pain and the suffering that has come into my life is learning how to think about the trouble and the pain and the suffering that comes into my life. And learning how, learning what what God says about it. Why does it exist? Um, you know, does God care? All of these questions that run through our minds when we're going through the darkest days of our lives. And so that's what we're going to do today. Um, but first, I want to back up just a little bit, and I want to talk about something else first. I want to talk about uh, the concept of, of science and theories, okay? Uh, in the last half of the 20th century, scientists were almost unanimously in agreement that what you see around you was just an accident, right? It was a, it was a cosmic accident, and it was just a one in a trillion chance that all of this happens uh, based on this one Big Bang. Um, there were scattered voices that said, no, this is too complex to be an accident. There has to be a designer. There has to be a planner, a creator behind it all. But for the most part, those scientists were sort of laughed out of the room, right? They were sort of, uh, uh, I mean, they lived, they, they lived their entire careers under a dark cloud. They, I mean, basically, you had to work at a Christian college or a Christian high school, or you had to kind of have your own sort of thing going. But, but almost unanimously, everybody was... Science as a whole was just like, this is an accident. And if you didn't agree, there was a lot of friction. And I, I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Scientists, scientists, if you don't agree with them, they can be downright mean sometimes. Let's watch this. Greetings. I brought Amy here to show her some of the work I'm doing. It's very impressive for theoretical work. Do I detect a hint of condescension? I'm sorry, was I being too subtle? <laughs> I meant compared to the real-world applications of neurobiology, theoretical physics is what's the word I'm looking for. Hmm, cute. Oh? <laughs> Are you suggesting the work of a neurobiologist like Babinski could ever rise to the significance of a physicist like Clark Maxwell or Dirac? I'm stating it outright. Babinski eats Dirac for breakfast and defecates Clark Maxwell. <laughs> You take that back. <laughs> Absolutely not. My colleagues and I are mapping the neurological substrates that subserve global information processing, which is required for all cognitive reasoning, including scientific inquiry, making my research ipso facto prior in the Ordo Cognoscendi. That means it's better than his research, and by extension, of course, yours. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm still trying to work on defecating Clark Maxwell. So. <laughs> Excuse me, but a grand unified theory, insofar as it explains everything, will ipso facto explain neurobiology. 
Yes, but if I'm successful, I will be able to map and reproduce your thought processes in deriving a grand unified theory, and therefore subsume your conclusions under my paradigm. That's the rankest psychologism, and was conclusively revealed as hogwash by Gottlob Frege in the 1890s. We appear to have reached an impasse. I agree. I move our relationship terminate immediately. Seconded. There being no objections. <laughs> the motion carries. Good day, Amy Farrah Fowler. Good day, Sheldon Cooper. Women, huh? And let with them can't successfully refute their hypotheses. Amen to that. Who knew that science could be so uh, divisive? But, you know, like I said, science was almost universally in agreement until about the last 20 years or so. There's been this growing, rising tide, maybe, of people who are starting to buy into this concept that, uh, that's called uh, complexity theory. And the idea is that there are these things in the universe that are exactly the way that they have to be in order for life to exist. And if any one of these things was just a little bit different, life would not exist. Now, this is been true for many years. For, for years, people have known, scientists have known, that the Earth is in just the right spot in our solar system, right? A little bit closer to the sun, we would burn up. A little further away from the sun, we would be a giant ice ball, and there wouldn't be any, any life on Earth if, if it wasn't for we're in just the right spot. As a matter of fact, physicists call it the Goldilocks zone. The Earth sits in the Goldilocks zone, not too close, not too far, just right, right? And what's you know, that, that's been true for years. And, and that's, so there have been scientists that are like, look, it has to be this way. Well, there, there were a few of those, right, at first. And scientists were like, yes, we see that. And we know that the odds are astronomical, that that would, that, 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 that would be an accident. But we believe that the odds are even more astronomical that there's a creator behind all of this. But as more and more and more of these little things that have to be exactly the way they are or else life would not exist on this earth. As more and more and more of those come along, there are more and more scientists who are going over to this concept of complexity theory and saying, I can't believe I'm saying it, but it looks like there's a design here. It looks like there's a plan here. Um, there's a, one guy that wrote a book, and I didn't read the book, um, but I did read a review on the book. And uh, this guy was talking about, you know, the reviewer was telling about this guy's book. He's like, you know, here's what complexity theory is. Here are some of the examples, you know, the, how far away the earth is from the sun, the, the tilt, the, the, the angle upon which the earth rotates as it revolves around the sun. It has to be exactly the way that it is. The fact that we have a moon, just how far away the moon is from the earth. The atomic weight of hydrogen, the strange atomic principles of carbon, all these things that they can't really explain why they are the way they are, but they can say, if it wasn't for these things being exactly, exactly the way they are, we wouldn't be here. And the, the guy in his book actually says, says um, I can see the day coming where a scientist who claims this is all just an accident will be called a crackpot, 
and drummed out of the scientific community. And I'm like, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading, and neither could the reviewer. The reviewer was very objective as he went along through the first three quarters of the review. And when he writes what the, what the author wrote about how, you know, I can see the day coming where people will be considered crackpots if they think this is all an accident, at that point he kind of loses his mind. He loses his objectivity, right? And he says, he stops reviewing and he starts inserting his own, and he says, I'm sorry, but I just have to say, if, this, if there's a plan here, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And that's the question, right? That's the question that comes to everybody's mind at some point. The theory goes something like this with, with that idea. The idea is suffering exists, but if God was good, then he wouldn't allow suffering to exist. And so God either is not all good or he's not all powerful because suffering exists. If he was all good but couldn't fix it, that means he's not all powerful. Or if he's all powerful but doesn't fix it, that means he's not all good. And so that's the theory. And it's a compelling one, right? I mean, that one really struck me 30 years ago when I was kind of trying to decide which direction am I going in my life? What do I think about the world? What do I believe about reality? And so I started doing a lot of research on that question, on that theory. If God was all good and all powerful, suffering would not exist. Now, let me talk for just a second now, put a pin in that, talk for just a second about another scientific thing that happened back in the 1900s. You can tell I'm a scientist, right? Scientific thing happened back <laughs> in the 1900s. Um, before that, scientists believed that light was a wave, right? They also believed that waves did not have matter in them. There was no, there was no weight to a light wave. But in around 1900, some, some studies were done, some experiments were done, and scientists started to say, no, there's particles in light. Light does have mass. Light does have weight. And so there be, there, these, these clashes of theories came along, right? And the scientists were trying to figure out what to do. Now, what do you think happened? Do you think the scientists threw up their hands and said, well, there's something wrong with light? I'm done with light. I'm not going to bother with light anymore. As a matter of fact, I don't even believe in light. Light is dead to me. No. No. What did they say? They said, there is something wrong with my theory. I had this theory that, there was, that it was a wave and there was no matter, no weight to a wave. Now I find out there is matter. There is particles. There is weight to a wave. What does this mean? Let's do some more studies. Let's figure it out. Let's come up with a new theory because there was something wrong with our old one. 30 years ago, when I had that idea, if God was all good and all powerful, suffering would not exist. But I looked around and saw there's a lot of suffering in this world. Instead of just kind of saying, well, there must be something wrong with God then, I'm done with them. Uh, I started asking, is there maybe something wrong with my theory? Is that, is that true, that if God was all good and all powerful, that suffering would not exist. And I'll just tell you right now, I'll jump ahead, spoiler alert, I don't think so. I think that we're gonna look at why suffering exists from the perspective of the writers of the Bible, who, by the way, every single one of which suffered horribly in their lives. 
and see what do they have to say about suffering and about God and about why all of this exists and what that means for us. Uh, I'll just kind of give you an idea. If, if you're thinking, you know, gosh, I would really like to spend some time, some more time thinking about this. This, the next 20 minutes is not going to settle the issue in your mind, I don't think, okay? Um, I did a lesson a couple of years ago on the book of Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible, actually. It doesn't tell the oldest story in the Bible, but it was written before any other book in the Bible was written. And it is, a, it is the original case study of why good things, why bad things happen to good people. And so I guess you could say that the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is literally the oldest question in the Bible. And I did an entire lesson just on Job. Um, it's, in, it's on the Facebook page right now. You can go to Facebook, Riverside's Facebook page, and watch that and uh, kind of get another idea. Um, what I did when I started getting serious about this stuff is I started reading everything I could get my hands on about this stuff. And I'll just tell you right now that for me, fiction helped a lot more than nonfiction. I, I kind of tend to fall asleep as I'm reading nonfiction. Uh, but there are some fiction books where they are dealing with this question that I'm not saying they will tell you how to think, but they will get you started thinking and will have you asking questions. And for me, that's incredibly powerful. Um, there's a book called The Case for Faith. We have it in the back. You can pick it up on the way out if you want. One of the chapters is about this. What would God, would a good, powerful God allow suffering? That helped me. Um, the book The Shack. It's not perfect by any means, all right? There are a lot of things in there that'll shock you, that'll make you go, wait a minute, what's going on here? Which I think is nothing but a good thing. You know, if, if something kind of shocks you awake and makes you think, is that really the way it is? Then, but, but one of the conversations that the, the protagonist has with God in this book circles around this concept of why did you let these bad things happen to me and the people that I love? Another great place to kind of get you thinking in these terms. And then I'll just give you one more. that uh, It's an old book. It was a trilogy, actually, by a guy named Frank Peretti. Called, uh, the first one was called This Present Darkness. Then there was Piercing the Darkness. And then there was a third darkness book. I don't remember what it was. But the three of them together, uh, they kind of come at this question of suffering from the perspective of uh, spiritual warfare. And what's going on in the spiritual realms that we can't see that's impacting the suffering, the trouble, the pain here on earth. What do we do that sort of helps with, you know? Anyways, those things kind of helped me. If that's something that you're thinking, I wanna, I wanna kind of be thinking about this a lot more, spend some time kind of reading these things, thinking about them, and, and, and talking to God about what theory you might have about why suffering exists in this world. Don't just think, well, there's something wrong with, with God. Ask yourself maybe, is there something wrong with my theory? and then kind of work your way through it. I'm not saying that you won't work your way through it and say, nope, there's nothing wrong with my theory. There's something wrong with God. I'm not saying that you won't get there, okay? But that's not where I got. Uh, and so real quickly, in 15 minutes, <laughs> what did I learn over the last 30 years about why suffering exists? Well, it all starts at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And for six days, God creates, right? You read this beautiful poem in Genesis chapter 1 about the creation of the universe. And at the end of it, in Genesis 1 verse 31, the Bible says, Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. 
And so the question comes up, so then where did suffering and evil come in? Where did pain get into the creation? How did that happen? Did God create that? And the answer is no, but see, that's also a kind of a trick question because while God is not the author of evil, he did, in those six days of creation, plant the seed that from that one seed sprang every source of pain and suffering and trouble that, that has ever come upon the world, okay? And that leads us to our first point today. Um, suffering exists because of free will. This is from the perspective of the Bible, okay? Um, what the Bible says is that suffering exists because God gave us the ability to choose. And when he did, he knew that there would be some times that his children would say, yeah, I know what God wants me to do, but I think I know better than him what's going to satisfy me, what's going to make me happy. And so I'm going to do what I know he doesn't want me to do because I think I know better. And that's exactly what happens with Adam and Eve, right? He puts them in the garden. He says, everything is yours, everything. There's one thing you can't have. The fruit from this one tree. Don't eat that fruit. It is bad for you. The day you eat that fruit is going to be a bad day. And nobody knows for sure how long it took, all right? There are some people that think it may have been millions of years that Adam and Eve lived in that garden and never touched that fruit. I don't think so. I, I imagine that it was probably just a few days, but nobody knows for sure. But eventually, this is what happens. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. The serpent convinces her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame. Shame, regret, guilt, fear, anxiety, worry, all of these things enter into the world that have never been a part of the world before because of free will. And not just that, not just does, does sin sort of disrupt the relationship between heaven and earth, between us and God, and not only does it disrupt the relationship between human beings, one human being to another, it, it, not only does it even just impact our relationship with ourselves and cause all kinds of internal turmoil and problems, but in some way, sin disrupted the relationship between human beings and the rest of the created world. In Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 21, the Apostle Paul says, Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Even the creation, Paul says, groans, waiting for the day when everything will be restored. Okay? And so it all comes down to this concept of free will. Every, every painful thing that has ever happened comes down to that one thing. We make choices that hurt other people. We make choices that hurt ourselves. But even the things that aren't really anybody's fault, sickness, disease, accidents, animal attacks, natural disasters, right? Even those things, you can lay those, the blame for those things at, at the door of free will. That, that's when all of it came in. That's when everything changed, okay? And so a lot of times we'll say, well, well why doesn't God fix that then? Why doesn't, if free will causes so much pain, then why doesn't he do something about it? Which leads us to our 
Second point for today, free will exists because of love, okay? Because without love, or without free will, there can't be any love, if that makes sense. Um, otherwise, we'd be robots. Uh, Max Lucado tells this story about an angel watching God create, right? And he's kind of standing over God's shoulder watching this whole thing. And you know, as God creates the heavens and the earth, and the angel is impressed, right? He's like, whoa, Lord, that is awesome. I never would have thought. Mountains. Who, who would have thought of mountains? You know, that's awesome, you know? And God keeps creating, and the, the angel, all along the way, the angel is impressed, right? Every time God does something, the angel goes, fantastic, Lord. That is fantastic. And then the sixth day comes, and God starts his, his ultimate creation. Human beings, which would bear his own likeness, which, into whom he would breathe his own spirit. And the angel is like, that is phenomenal. But then when God goes to put free will into the heart of the human, the angel's like, um, Lord, are you sure you want to do that? Because you know what that could lead to, right? And so Max Lucado says God takes this angel on a tour through human history, showing all of the despair and the destruction that will be caused by free will. He says, yeah, I know what it can cause. They end up at a hill outside of Jerusalem where God's son is hanging on a cross because of it. And the angel says, if this is where it's going, then why not take away their ability to choose? And God says, because of love. And he takes him back to the beginning again. And he takes him on this, this journey through human history and shows them all the heights to which the human spirit can attain when it's motivated by love. The love of parents for their children. The love of, of, of brothers and sisters for each other and for their parents. The love of friends. This, this beauty that exists that would never exist if it wasn't for freedom. We'd just be robots at that point, right? In... Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says that God is love. Not he loves better than anybody else. Not he's, no, he is love. Think about that this week. Just spend, I mean, what, what does that mean? God is love. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, the Bible says, let love be your highest goal. And in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, the Bible says, no matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Bankrupt. That's an amazing statement. And see, here's the thing. For God, love is the most valuable commodity in the universe. Right? It is so valuable that to take away the concept of love, yeah, sure, it would take away all the human suffering that exists in the world, and God won't do it. Because he is so sold on this concept of love. It's like his wild gamble is that somehow the love and the beauty and the joy and the hope that love brings will somehow eclipse the pain and the misery and the suffering that freedom of choice can also bring about in this world. And you see it over and over and over again. You, now, if you're like me, you think, okay, well... well Okay, he does, I don't want him to take away all free will, but what about for the really, really bad things, right? What about for just the really horrific things or the things that I do that are so stupid that they totally alter the course of my life? Couldn't he just stop me from doing those things? And I don't understand it all, all right? Um, the Bible can get really vague sometimes about certain 
parts of this whole plan. And there are lots of reasons for that. If, you, if that's something else that you're curious about, C.S. Lewis deals with it in the, the, the Narnia books. He calls it the deep magic, the stuff that was written before the white witch, which is the devil, before the devil comes along. And so the devil doesn't even know about that stuff, which is why the devil goes ahead and, and prompts people to kill Jesus, not knowing what that's going to do, right? There's this, this deep magic, if you like, C.S. Lewis's term. And Lewis says that deep magic somehow says, if God violates free will once with one person, he has to do it with everybody. I don't know. I don't know exactly. It seems like that's exactly what's going on. I can't point you to exactly where it says that. But that really seems like what's going on, that, that, that God can't just step in and say, sorry, I'm not going to let you do that. Now, he can manipulate events, and he can, can, can try to convince people, but he, he told Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. But when they stepped up there to take the fruit, he didn't say, ah, no, you know, <laughs> he didn't even do that, right? He was like, we got to let them do what they're going to do, or love cannot exist. Um... Sometimes what we try to do with pain is we try to pretend that it's, that, that it's not really pain. That there's not, it doesn't really hurt. We try to bottle it up and it never works. Shannon, can you take us to the video clip real quick? I want to watch that. Yeah, just, we'll come back to that. Ready? Yep, I'm ready. Are you guys ready? I've got no leg room back here. Move your seat forward. It's as far as it goes. There's a mechanism. You just pull it and throw your body weight. I pulled it. It doesn't go. You want the leg room? Say you want the leg room. Don't blame the mechanism. My dad, we're five blocks from the house. Sit sideways. Like an animal. Because of her, I have to sit here like an animal. Serenity now! Serenity now! What is that? Doctor gave me a relaxation cassette. When my blood pressure gets too high, the man on the tape tells me to say, Serenity now! Are you supposed to yell it? The man on the tape wasn't specific. The screen door it blew off again. I told you to fix that thing. Serenity, no! What happened to you, pal? Joey Safino and some of the neighborhood kids, they ambushed me with a box of Grade A's. <laughs> Are you all right? Oh, no, I'm fine, fine. Serenity now. <laughs> Serenity now. Serenity now. So you're using Frank's relaxation method? Jerry, the anger, it just melts right off. Serenity now. Serenity now. Hey, what happened to you? Serenity. You're not gonna give away that water pit! You wanna bet? Serenity now! Serenity now! You, know, you should tell your dad that serenity now thing doesn't work. Just bottles up the anger and then eventually you blow it. Serenity now. Insanity later. What happened here, Kramer? Serenity now, Serenity now. Kramer! Jerry, didn't hear you come in. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the children, they've, they've, they've done some redecorating. You don't look well. Huh? Oh, well, that's odd because I feel perfectly at peace with the world. That aches you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Look at me. I stepped on your last rose. Jerry, come on. 
Don't get so upset about it. There's always next spring. Would you excuse me for a moment? Christians that are almost like, no, suffering doesn't exist. Suffering, the, the trouble doesn't bother me. Trouble, it just, it just sort of, you know, washes off of me and, you know, it's like they're saying serenity now. And what, you'll never find that in the Bible. Never will you find James or Jesus or any of the other writers of the New Testament say, trouble's not so bad. Never. They'll say, I know it hurts. I know that it brings suffering. Here's how you handle it. Never, here's how you can live a life without it, okay? So, suffering exists because of free will. Free will exists because of love. People will say sometimes, okay, so why doesn't God do something about it? And the answer is, he did. He is, he has. He's continuing to. And that leads us to the third point. We're not going to do the fourth today. I'll just tell you right now, if you're going, wow, how's he going to get these two done? We'll do the fourth again next week, right before we get ready to go into uh, temptation. It'll work just perfectly. But when it comes to this concept of redeeming our suffering, Jesus came into this world. I used to think that his, I used to think that his sacrifice, that him being my savior meant that I had an eternity guaranteed, right? That I, I didn't have to worry about my eternity. That he had forgiven my past. So I, I, he came to forgive me, save me from my past. But what I've been learning over the last 30 years is that Jesus also comes to redeem my present, my today, to give me the power to live today at my best, right? To live what James calls a glorious life, not a problem-free life, not a, a life where there's no trouble, but a life where I'm not perfect, but I am free. A life where, where I can, can see the beauty and the miracle of God's love working in me and impacting the people around me. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, this is written 800 years before Jesus comes, and it is a description about what he would do when he got here. It's eerie how close it is to what Jesus goes through. But Isaiah says, we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That's what God did. To do something about the suffering that we're going through. He can't stop at all. He would have to stop everything. He would have to turn us into robots. He won't do that. But he sends Jesus, and what Jesus does is not just guarantee our future, not just forgive us of our past, but give us the energy, the power, the strength to live today the best we can possibly live. To somehow redeem the problems that we go through. To bring something beautiful out of them in spite of them. Not to erase them. Even God can't do them. Not even to make the bad things that have happened to us good. God can't even do that. But he can take the broken pieces 
and make something beautiful out of them no matter what's come before. And that's miraculous to watch. I've seen it happen in my life. I've seen it happen in your guys' lives. I know it's going to happen over and over and over again. He came to redeem it. And he will if you let him. God gets a lot of bad press in this world, right? And I think almost all of it is because of what people who claim to speak for him, who claim to be his people, what we say and we do, that has nothing to do with who Jesus was, right? God gets some bad press in this world. When Jesus hung on that cross to redeem our trouble, our pain, to guarantee our future, to, to forgive our past and give us power to live today, when he did that, he makes God look really, really good. Why does trouble exist? Free will. Is God going to get rid of it? No, because of love. I know some of you are in the midst of it right now. And I can't tell you why suffering exists. I can't even tell you how long it's going to last in your life, but I can tell you this. God cares deeply about it and has done everything he can to try to help you get through it and to redeem it as you, after you've gone through it. Let's pray. Lord, we don't always understand the way the world works. We, We've all got theories about who you are and how the world works and why it is the way that it is. And so, Lord, today we just ask you to, uh, to give us guidance as we question our own theories about how, why suffering exists and what that means about you and what that means about us. Lord, guide us as we look for answers in our lives that will help us to move forward into the future that you have planned for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.